I wanted to start a new series on the book of Ephesians. And the more I thought about it, the Lord kept putting me back in Galatians. And I said, why? <laughs> I thought I was done. And the Lord had highlighted a few things that I needed to know and understand. And the cross of Jesus kept coming up, kept coming up, kept coming up. And I said, Lord, am I going to teach on this? I thought it was done. You know, I have my plans. God has his. And the Lord reminded me of the three things that Paul spoke about the cross in the book of Galatians. And we're going to talk about that very quickly as we finish today. This will probably be our last study in Galatians, unless the Lord has other thoughts. Uh, but we're looking forward to starting Ephesians. But today, how to live a good life, the three aspects of the cross. How to live a good life. Isn't that the question that most people want answers to? How to live a good life. The Bible has a very, very good answer. It may not be what we think it is, but let's look at what the Bible says. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're so thankful that you're alive, that you are real, that you uh, speak to us, Lord, through your word, and we'll be able to have a relationship with you through the Spirit. We praise you, Lord, today for who you are and ask you that you bless our time together. Thank you for uh, the Bernardi family. Thank you, Lord, for Peter. Thank you, Lord, for their commitment to raise him in a godly way. And we praise you, Lord, that you came as a baby, just like that, and you uh, taught us and you showed us the way that it is to God, that you are the only way, and that you can relate to us because you are a man, just like us, a human being. And so, Lord, today we look to what the scripture says about what you did on the cross and what it means to have a good life or to live a good life, Lord, we ask you to teach us. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the Bible that we have today. And we thank you, Lord, that we can listen to it and make a change in us, Lord, through your word and by your spirit, Lord. Bring us to the point where we're able to change. Convict us, Lord, and bring us to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. How to live a good life. Most people want to know that. Well, I think most answers is, if you are the right social class, you can have a good life. If you have the right political affiliation, that's big time today, you can live a good life. If you live in the right location, you can have a good life. If you have enough resources, you can have a good life. Is that what most people think, right? Uh, and then for some of us, if you have the right religious affiliation, you can live a good life. If you have the right philosophy and the right job and the right thinking and you follow the rules, you can have a good life and things that will satisfy us, then that's a good life. But isn't that the, is that the case? Do we have the things that satisfy us and satisfy God? That's the question. And the answer to, the, to what the, the scripture says regarding what is a good life or how to live a good life, the answer in the Bible is very, very simple. You want to have a good life? The cross of Jesus is your answer. The cross of Jesus. Now, we normally wouldn't associate it with this because why will the cross be a good life? None of us, when, oh, when we saw the cross, because we live in the 21st century, had I shown you a, an electric chair, or a noose, or something of that nature, you would be shocked and be like, what is this guy doing up there with that thing? <laughs> That's what the way the first century people would have looked at the cross. A form of execution, a radical death to the individual on that equipment. It was the cross. It was an execution. It was a goodbye to self. And this is the way God wants us to have a good life? This is the way to have a good life? Well, that might be a little bit shocking to us, but it's the way the scripture tells us. And Paul is going to describe this in his letter to this church called the Galatians. It's found in the letter to the Galatians. It's in, in the New Testament. And we've been studying this for quite some time. Now, when I was not a Christian, I was not raised as a Christian. I did not know Christianity until I was 20. I knew about God and the things that I was told about religion, but it was mainly religion. It was mainly religion that I knew. I didn't know God. I didn't know the scriptures. I didn't know anything about it. I knew Jesus was just a religious figure. 
on, on some piece of uh, art. That's, that's the way I looked at it. And I had religion as a kid. Growing up in a Roman Catholic home, I thought I knew what religion was. And I thought religion, at some point, I thought religion was a way to control people. I honestly thought that. Look what they do. You teach them a few things and they follow it. And that's the way I looked at it. I said, oh, religion is just a way to control people. Um, I did not, at some point in my life, I did not want religion anymore. I thought it was a way to control people and it was a sham and it was all kinds of weird things and scandals and it was a way to get money from people. I thought, this has nothing to do with religion. So I went to what I thought it would be better. I wanted to be in science. I wanted to prove things. I wanted to know scientifically if there was any truth out there. And so I went into wanting to be part of the medical field and wanting to be like a scientist in a sense. Well, that was my plan. I went into, try, I went into science trying to explain different questions. What is truth? How do you prove truth? And all this stuff, scientific evidence and scientific ways and methods and things like that, all that stuff. However, through different circumstances in my life, I began to hear the gospel for the first time. My sister had become a Christian, and so they were sort of like, what's going on here? <laughs> Has she become religious? Become a fanatic? One of those fanatics that I used to discuss things with in my college class? What is it that, what's the difference between religion and what she was telling me? It was the gospel. It was the gospel of Jesus. The reality was that there are major differences between the gospel and religion. By the way, God does not want you to be religious. God detests religion. And I know it's hard to say that from a church, but because I don't believe in religion. I believe religion takes you away from God more than anything in this world. Even more than sinful behaviors, religion can remove you from a true relationship with God more than any other thing. I've seen it. I didn't grow up in the States for a while. I grew up in Nicaragua. I was Central America. I know what religion does to people in those places. And I thought, well, if you can't have religion, maybe you could just have political things, right? Social activism, revolutionary things. And then I saw what it did. Killing people, destruction, mayhem. And I thought, man, religion doesn't work. Man-made political things don't work. What works? What actually works? Three differences between religion and the gospel. Number one, religion is a blind faith. They don't prove anything. They just say, follow this, you'll make it, maybe. Right? Just follow this. And you need something to explain things. Right? So you have a fear of death, so you need religion to kind of, to, uh, kind of explain to you what happens. When I read about Jesus, when I was not a Christian, when I read about Jesus, Jesus always said, examine me, test me, search me, follow me. I thought, that's not what religious people do. Religious people just say, just trust me, don't worry about it, just believe me. <laughs> and it gets all kinds of problems, right? Jesus said, come, search, fine, look, see, you come and follow me. Secondly, religion says all mankind is basically good. All mankind is basically good. We just have to express it in the right ways. Well, I lived in a war-torn country. Civil war, mayhem, death, destruction, poverty. Man is not basically good because they were trying to overthrow something that was evil, they said. We're going to overthrow this evil government. And then they get into power, and they're more evil than the previous government. How can man be basically good? Well, I read the Gospels, and the Bible says we were created to be good. We were created to be good, but we have fallen because of sin and disobedience to our Creator. So mankind is seeking to be good, but they can't because of sin and because of independence to our God. And the last one is man, religion is man trying to reach God. Religion is man trying to reach God. The gospel says God becomes a man in the person of Jesus, comes to this earth, lives a perfect life, keeps the law of the Old Testament perfectly, dies on a cross, 
rises again from the dead and gives people eternal life through faith and repentance. That's not man trying to reach God. That's God coming to us, being one of us, and rescuing us. That's the difference. And I thought, this is quite different. God doesn't want religion. He wants the gospel. He wants a relationship. He created us for that reason. And so Paul begins to speak of this. Who was Paul? The most religious man that has ever been. You want to know what the most religious man thought of religion once he met Jesus? He was very successful as a Pharisee. He was incredibly successful. In fact, he says of himself, if somebody would look at me on the outward, they thought I had no fault because he was completely immersed in keeping the law and regulations in order to maintain a right standing with God. And he said, somebody looked at my life, I was faultless. Nobody can prove anything that I was wrong. Until, he says, until he read the commandments. Now, he knew the commandments quite a, quite a ways from a little kid. I talked about the Jewish people today when we dedicated Peter, right? Jewish people would have known that since they were kids. And on the external things, Paul kept the Ten Commandments absolutely faultless. Except the last one, he says. What is the last commandment out of the ten? Thou shalt not covet. Because all the other ones may seem to be dealing with the external things. I don't have to steal. I don't have to lie. I don't have to commit adultery. I don't have to bow down before an idol. I don't have to do any of those things. But covetousness? That is something found within. And Paul says, when I realized what that meant, I found all manner of coveting within me. I wanted a position. I wanted to have more authority. I wanted to be recognized. I wanted to be the best among the Hebrews. And I found myself face to face with the law of God. And he says, I died that day. Because he realized that he had blown it. He had missed it. Covetousness. But then the Bible tells us that it's not just the external part of the law that we have to worry about. It's the internal part. Where the Bible says you need to look at the spirit of the law. Meaning what's behind the law. Why does it say not to commit adultery? Well, it's wrong. But it also begins in the heart. Jesus said, if you looked at a woman in lust, if you imagined her to be in a sexual relationship like you would with a wife, if you imagine that person, husband, wife, whatever, man, woman, whatever it is, if you imagine that, then you're guilty of adultery. Even though you've never physically, externally committed it, inwardly, you've been there. And it's just as sinful as the person who did it physically. If you hated someone, if you became angry at someone, without a cause, and you just went off on them. The Bible says that's murder because you hate it. See, all begins in the heart. What is the thing about regulations and internal things? Because regulations only deal with the outward. Hey, I don't, I don't have to worry about the commandment of adultery. I don't do it. But then if you deal with the internal part, do you have lust? Do you lust after someone or something? Do you covet that's internal. Laws and regulations are not going to fix that. It's something within us that has cost us to offend God. See, the thing is not external. And that's what Paul found out. The most religious man came to the conclusion, it's not the external things that make me wrong with God. It's the internal things that make me wrong with God that nobody sees and nobody knows. And we keep it hidden. And we put hedges around us, right, to keep others away from the internal things. And, and we put ourselves in regulations to say, well, I've done that. It's, I must not be that bad. Oh, I kept this. That means I'm good. And yet God says it's the internal things that needs to be dealt with. Paul was on the road to a place called Damascus. It's on the news very much every day today because of the war in Syria. Paul was on that road. And Paul said he met Jesus that day. And since that day, he's never been the same. Because when he met Jesus, he realized Jesus wanted a new heart in Paul. He didn't want Paul to follow more rules and regulations, which they had 613. Can you imagine that? Trying to live by 613 rules. That's the Jewish people lived. He didn't want Paul to follow more rules. He wanted Paul to love him and follow him 
with a new heart. Because what was inside of Paul needed to change. Not the external things first. The internal things needed to come first. And so the problem with mankind is inside. See, this is why religion doesn't work. Because religion cannot deal with what's inside. It can tell you what to do, how to do it, external. Hey, show up at church at 1030. Be here. You better make sure you're here. You better make sure you're at that meeting. You better make sure you're reading your Bible. What's wrong with reading our Bible? Nothing. If it's only external. If it's just only external, then it's, it, it could be a facade. It could be a great deception to you. You better do this. You better do that. Regulations, follow the rules, follow the calendar. But it can never do the inside. What's the inside? See, the Bible pictures mankind like a tree and like a trunk. The major issue is sin, that all these little roots tangle itself everywhere, right? Those are the sins. But the major issue that mankind has is independence. We seek independence from God. That's the major issue. And then that independence flows out in different forms, right? Because we seek independence, it becomes our biggest struggle. I behaved like I was my own God for many, many years. Nobody was going to tell me what to do, right? Independence, independence from God. God says this, I said, no, no thanks, I'll do it this way. And our forefathers, Adam and Eve, began that problem, and that is transferred to every single one of us. That sin that is so easily besets us, that independence, not wanting God to tell us how to live. Is it me or is it just I'm the only one that had a problem like that? No? All right. <laughs> I was the only one with that problem that I looked at what God said and I said, man, that sounds good, but no thanks. I will do it my way. Who makes your decisions in life? Who rules your life? Even today, right? Who's in control of it? That's the trunk. That's the issue. Now, it's, it'll, it'll be spread out in different forms. Those are the roots. And that's the biggest problem we need to solve today. That problem cannot be solved by religion. It requires an infinite person to come and deal with that sin. And thank God, God has done that today. Thank God, God dealt with that problem that I cannot deal with it myself. The cross of Jesus is the problem, is the solution to the problem. Turn to Galatians 2.20. I want to show you something very quickly. If you have a Bible, Galatians 2.20. The first aspect, by the way, uh, today you can divide it into three messages. It's one message, but it's three messages. So three aspects of the cross. Uh, so you get three, three for one today. Hopefully you get to finish on time. You can break each one of these in one message, but I'll just give it to you in one message. Three aspects of the cross. The first one, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, the most religious man who ever lived, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The sacrifice of an animal, the Old Testament says, was only a temporary illustration to deal with the problem that we had was sin. The animal that was sacrificed in the Old Testament simply was a way to explain to us that there needs to be a sacrifice in your behalf, on your behalf, in order to deal with the sin and independence and rebellion that we all have. And so our answer becomes Jesus. When Jesus was on the scene, he comes to the Jordan River, and the John the Baptizer says, Jesus he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Singular sin. The sin of the world. Remember that big trunk? The trunk issue? That's the sin of the world. Independence. We live in independence from God. We don't want God to tell us how to live. And if somebody tells you, you get mad inside. And you fold your arms and say, I'm not living that way. Because I'm the captain of my own destiny. And there's no one who's going to come and tell me otherwise. Now, we might not say that, but we certainly live it. We certainly live that way. Paul says, the first aspect of the cross, I've been crucified with Christ. I have been justified before God. 
See, the problem is in the inner man. How do you get rid of the inner person? How do you get rid of the inner problem? No religion can do that. No external laws. I can't give you a book of regulations and say, hey, if you do this, you'll be all right. It's like this. You can... You ever been in a, in, a, in a tropical environment? Maybe you visit tropical areas, and they tell you, mosquitoes, mosquitoes, big problem, mosquitoes. Get a net for your bed, things like that. You can build up all the nets you want, but if the mosquito's inside and you've got malaria, I don't care how many nets you put up. You can put up malaria, I mean, put up nets, net neighbor across the street. But if you have malaria, my friend, no nets is going to save you. And that is how the Bible pictures sin. You can build up all the heads you want, regulations, laws, I'm not do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do the other. But if you're already infected by that, that hedge, that protection is not going to take away what's already in you. Malaria is only dealt with medicine. <laughs> Malaria can only be dealt with medicine, not nets. You need something for the inside. And so Paul says, Jesus did that for me. On the inside, he died for me. And he died for me to give me a new life. He died for me to give me a new life, and he loved me. Did you see that part there? He loved me and gave himself for me. Some of the things we forget about that part, and it gripped Paul to the core. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me. And it never left Paul, that, that thinking, that idea that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, loved them personally. And he loves you personally. And he loves you so personally that he willingly went to the cross to pay for that independence, that sin, that rebellion, not only the trunk, but all those little things, those little roots on the side that began to spawn out of your rebellion and my rebellion. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That is called justify. What is justify? It's simply an old um, judicial term. When you went to court, you stood before the judge, and you knew you were guilty. And the, and the judge would say, justified or guilty? All right, it's like saying, you know, guilty or not guilty, right? Normally don't say innocent, but they say not guilty. Justified or guilty? And that person would hear those words, justified. And that person would come out of that dark corner where they were kept, and they would set, be set free to go after they were dealt with that violation they committed. And that is exactly what the Word of God tells us. That's the same word that is used, justified. What does justified mean? Meaning that I had an issue with God. I had sinned against God. I had offended God by how I lived and what I did and what I said and how I treated people. But God in his mercy has declared me innocent of all charges. He has justified me, the individual. See, the individual can be set free, but God never says, it's okay, don't worry about that sin. God doesn't justify sin. Sin is dealt with by this. Jesus has to go to the cross and deal with your sin so you can be let go free. Justify. Just as if you've never done it. Just as if you never did it. And he's given that to us as a way to understand that he forgives us by paying the debt that we committed. The debt that we had against God, the debt of our independence and in sin is forgiven, justified, as if it never happened. As if it never happened, and God can treat us as if we never did it. Why? Because Jesus suffered and died in our place as if he did it. Jesus takes your place and takes the guilt and takes the blame for what you did. Well, that's not fair. That's called grace, my friend. That's called grace. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I've done things against God that is unspeakable. And you have done things against God that are unspeakable. But we've hit it really well. And we covered it with religion. And we've done things to maneuver religion around so we don't feel guilty anymore. But the guilt's still there. The shame's still there. Jesus comes and justifies the sinner. You're free. He didn't do it. But I did it. No, nope. Jesus did it. Well, he didn't do anything. He lived the perfect life. He took your place. 
and you're free to go. Thank you, Jesus. Free. Freedom is what God offers us. Freedom. Not religion. Religion will put you back into regulations. Okay, now that you come to church, here's a book. Follow it. 613 laws. You're good? Let me know how you did next week. And then you don't do it, and you forget, and there's regulations and problems. You feel guilty and shame and fear. No, God doesn't do that. Now we have a connection with God. Now we have a, a Father in heaven. And this is what the Bible tells us to be justified. I've been crucified with Christ. Paul, the most religious man, says, that has been dealt with. My rules and regulations that I had to keep have been dealt with. And Jesus has invited me to come to his cross. How to have a good life? How to live a good life? Come to the cross, my friend. And he promises to set you free. That's the first message. Let's look at the second message. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Moving right along. Galatians chapter 5. Paul says this. The second aspect of the cross. The first aspect, crucified to the law. There's no more regulations. It's freedom in Jesus. Second aspect of it, verse 24, those who, have belong, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the nature of sin in our own lives with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The Bible calls this word flesh. Now, it doesn't mean your physical body, your tissue and ligaments and things like that. That's not what it means. It means the inside original person who desires sin, the original way we are created. We are created to be good, but we're fallen. And we have a nature that desires to live in opposition to what God says. You ever looked at a, a speeding limit? It says 25? I'm sure you go 24. No. Now, if it said 55, you go 54, right? No. If it said 65, you go 64? You can go 100, and people will still go over 100. The speed limit, we see it as a suggestion. <laughs> we see it as a suggestion. Why is it that when we're told not to do something, we have this pinching desire to do it? From little kids on, you don't have to teach little kids about that. They just know. If the kids, you have to teach the kids how to share. You have to teach your kids how to say yes. Where does that come from? There's an innate, there's a, there's a desire from within at the very beginning when we even start having a conscious to wanting to be independent, separate, and to live in opposition to any rules or regulations we follow, we, they're, they're around. And that is the nature of mankind. That is the natural, in, that's the natural way we are. That's how we were born. That's how our great-great-great-grandparents were and our forefathers were. And it all come from two people, Adam and Eve, who decided that they were going to follow the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. They decided to hear Satan's words. You could be like God. Don't let him tell you what to do. The moment you eat this uh, fruit, you will be completely independent of God. Ooh. And you'll have knowledge. And you'll have freedom. And all he did was put shackles on them. Because from that point forward, mankind was slave to sin and slave to Satan's desires. And we couldn't even help ourselves because that's how we are. That's who, remember the inside? You can put all kinds of regulations. They won't change the person inside. Then Jesus shows up one day and Paul says, I died. He died for me. I'm willing to die with him. So my old nature doesn't have to be the ruler of my life. It all began with a man named Abraham. Remember Father Abraham? Remember that song as a little kid? Father Abraham had many sons. Well, this is exactly right. He had many sons. He had sons biologically, the Jewish people, alive today. Praise the Lord in Jerusalem and Israel, fulfilling prophecy. But he also had other children. And the scripture tells us that there was a promise made to Abraham. That promise included both Jew and all the nations of the world. The Jews would get the land of Israel, and through them there would be a blessing to all the nations because a person was going to come out of the loins of Abraham. That's called the seed. Going back to the garden, the promise that there would be a man who will come on the scene 
and he would crush the serpent's head who deceived us. I love that story. I tell my kids that story. It's a beautiful, it's a fascinating story, especially with kids. You know, snake, you know, just, just uh, um, you know, the, the, the snake shows up and he wants to destroy man and then Jesus shows up and he crushes the head and kids love it. Anyway, uh, especially boys. But that's what's going to happen. But along the process, it says, that seed, that man would be bruised. He would be bruised. And that's the cross. But that promise came to Abraham that all the Gentiles, you, me, non-Jewish people, would be blessed through Abraham. How? When Jesus comes to the cross, when Jesus dies in our place, it opens up to us not only justification, but the Holy Spirit is given to all those who believe. And that was a promise to Abraham, that Abraham's promise included you Gentiles, me Gentiles, non-Jews, would receive forgiveness of sin to deal with our past, but the Holy Spirit to help us live in our present. Isn't that a beautiful promise? The Holy Spirit is now given to us, and Paul went to preach this message to the Jews. He first wanted to kill the Christians, by the way. He was a radical terrorist. He wanted to destroy Christianity. He put in prison, men, women, children, whatever it is. He wanted to not only put them in prison, but kill them. And then Jesus came one day to him, and it totally changed. And the people he wanted to destroy, he became one of them. And the Jews that he wanted to emphasize that they were good Jews, he says, now he preaches to them, Jesus the Messiah. And then he's attacked, of course. But he goes, and he says, now we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit because it's the promise God made to Abraham. What's the Holy Spirit for? Well, he's a person, and now the Holy Spirit indwells each person who is born again. Religion cannot do that. Religion cannot give you the Holy Spirit. Only the cross of Jesus can open the Holy Spirit to you and to me. Only Jesus and the cross. That's why we need to go to the cross, Galatians 2. He was crucified for me. He loved me. He loved me and gave himself for me. Loved me so much, he justified me, but now he gives me the Holy Spirit. And he indwells us now. Jesus told them, I'm going to leave. I'm going to ascend, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to leave you someone like me, Jesus said. And I'm going to come to you through him. And when the Holy Spirit was given to Christians after Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit became in us, he became inside of us, and we became the building of God. The building of God. The building of God where God dwells, in which he will transform us from within so that we can be transformed on the external. He comes inside to change inside, you know that issue that we had inside, that tree trunk? So the external can now be right. See, religion tries to do it the other way. Religion says, get the external things right. I can't help you on the inside, but at least you look good doing it. (laughs) On the way to a Christless eternity in hell. That's what religion does. Just puts a bow on you. At least you look good, but does nothing from the inside. The Holy Spirit says, I'm going to fix the outside. But first, I have to change the inside. That tree trunk, it's got to go. Those little roots, got to go. In place, God in the center of your life. The Holy Spirit now indwells us, and now the Holy Spirit is part of our inner life. And Paul tells us we need to walk by the Spirit in order to do what? In order to put to death the inner desires that still wants to live in accordance to the original nature that we have. That sinful nature. The nature that desires to live in contrary to God. Still there. But now has to be put to death. Because there's a new person inside of us, the Holy Spirit. The new creation, the new you. Wants to do what is right. 
But the old creation, the old nature, the old sinful desires called the flesh, remember, not your body, tissue, but the innermost desire to do things contrary to God has to be dealt with, has to be put aside. And therefore, we are to crucify, right? He who belongs to Jesus have crucified the flesh. It's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing aspect of your life. Now, I can read to you the list of the flesh, but I could see that um, maybe take some time to do it, but you can read it on your own. Verse 17 uh, tells us about that, starting in verse 17 of chapter 5, all the way down to verse 21. It's speaking of the flesh. These are the activities of the flesh. And sometimes when you read it, and you should read it, we become aware that there are things in there that are still part of our life that hasn't left. I still behave envious and jealous. There's still drunkenness. There's still things that I, I don't know what, why am I behaving like this? Outbursts of anger and jealousy and strife and immorality. And Paul says those things are not to be done among Christians. Now, when Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, he gave it to us for that to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the story. When Jesus is on the cross, he's dead. He dies on the cross, but the Romans want to prove that he's really dead. And they grab a spear, a Roman soldier grabs a spear and thrust on Jesus' side. And what comes out of that side, what comes out of the, that wonderful side of Jesus? Blood and water comes out. And you would say, what is that for? Good question. The blood has always been for the justification of sin, for the forgiveness of sin. We have sinned. His blood is the atonement or what God requires in order for you to be let go freely. Does that make sense? In order for our sins to be dealt with, it needs to have an eternal person take our place on a cross, die our death so he can forgive us our sins. We committed the sin, not Jesus. He goes there, and he dies for us, and his blood cleanses us from all sin. It actually says his blood continues to cleanse us from all sin if we continue to confess and repent. It does continue to cleanse us. But then water comes out, and it is the promise from the Old Testament that the water would be a picture of refreshing, a picture of a person coming to us and just refreshing your day, your life. And that is the Holy Spirit picture as water, like rain, rain coming down. Jesus is pierced, blood comes out for forgiveness, and water comes out for refreshing, for a new life. Don't you feel great when you take a shower? Hot day, and you just go, man, I just got to go take a shower. And you go in and you come out, and you're like, man, I feel like a new person. That symbolism, that idea, we can understand, and God puts that as, that's like what the Holy Spirit does. When he comes on you and upon you, it's a whole new creation now. And not only indwells us, but he showers us. And Peter said to that group that you can have the Holy Spirit because it's what Jesus said, if anybody thirst, come to me and I will give you drink. If anyone thirst, and we all thirst, by the way, we all thirst for meaning, we all thirst for identity. We all thirst for some kind of identification and some kind of meaning in life. And we wonder, what's all there is? What's it about? And Jesus says, if you're wondering that, if you're tired of finding, trying to figure out what that is, come to me and I will give you living water, the Holy Spirit. And it have been shocking to people because it says, wait a minute, all the prophets of the Old Testament always said, come to God, come to God, you need to turn to God. This man, this young man from Nazareth says, come to me. You come to me and I will give it to you. He speaks as if he's God, because he is God. And he can give us the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so the second dimension of the cross, the second aspect of the cross, is if you have the Holy Spirit, he will help you put away your flesh. Put away the things that get in the way with God. We have a new life. We have the Holy Spirit. But we still have that old nature in us. Now, some of us try to deny it. Some of us try to hide it. Now, it says in there that it's evident. 
the works of the flesh or the aspects of the flesh is evident. If you're looking at this from with spiritual eyes, you could see, I'm not what God wants me to be. I still have those things. Well, Paul says, crucify it. Put it away. Put it away so you can walk in the direction of God. It's like this. You're going to leave today in a few minutes, and you're going to choose to go through that door or through that door. Don't go to that one. I don't even know if it works. No, it does work, but it's locked. You're going to go through that one or that one, but you're going to have to go through one of them. Unless you can go through the roof, but you can't. One or the other. You're going to go by the spirit or you're going to go by the flesh. And my friend, you cannot walk in two directions at the same time. You can go, well, I really like that door, but, and I'm going to go through that door, but I'm going to walk through that door. It's impossible. It's impossible. You're going to have to pick one today. Guarantee you. You're going to pick the spirit or you're going to pick the flesh. No, if you go through that door, I'm not saying you're going to walk in the flesh. I'm just saying you're going to pick one of them. You see a mass of people going through that door. <laughs> Curse on that door. No. But you get what I'm saying. You're going to have to choose. And you cannot go in both directions at the same time. It's impossible. So Paul says, you have to walk in the Spirit. If you're not walking in the Spirit, there's no neutral ground. You're walking through the flesh. And you cannot say, well, I I like both doors. I see good things on both sides. It is impossible. Paul says you can't walk in both ways. You've been justified, and the Holy Spirit now points you to this life now and says, this is the life I want for you. You want a good life? Find this life. Here it is. What about the other door, Lord? Put it away. Lock it. Throw the lock away. Throw the door away. Throw the key away. Don't go through it. But I really like that other door. It feels so comfortable. Yeah, because that's the way you used to be. You know how to do it really well because you lived like that for 30-some years. But you have a new life. Throw the door away. Throw the key away. Burn it. Whatever. (laughs) Don't go back through it. How do I? I don't have the power. Yes, the Holy Spirit will give you the power to walk through that door. How do I do it? Simply walk in the Spirit. Surrender when a choice is given, surrender to the Holy Spirit every time. If there's a temptation to be angry, surrender to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, I know that door very well, that anger. I know it very well. I used to be the postman for that door. But I choose not to go through that door. All of me says, get angry. But you say, don't. So I am going to trust you and surrender, and go through the door of peace. I, Lord, I, I have a problem with my mouth. I gossip. I do this. I say things that I don't really want to say. And it just comes to that moment. The Holy Spirit says, ah, ah, ah. You better not say it. You better not disrespect your husband. You better not treat your wife that way. But that door seems so good because they hurt me. Put it away. Walk in that direction. And if you surrender, you will find immense power. Power that you never thought could be possible. People are going to say, who are you? You're different. Yes, I'm walking in the spirit. Well, it's about time, right? No. Uh, (laughs) Somebody may say that, but it's like, wonderful. There's peace in the house. Why? Because those who walk in the spirit bring peace. It's the peaceable fruit. Let's continue. That's a good life. Just about done. Third dimension of the cross. Message number three. By the way, you can take every one of these messages, little short snippets, or you can do the whole thing. But you're going to walk away, I pray, with one of them in your heart. Chapter, five, chapter six, look at verse 14. But may it never be that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is the answer to our problems, my friend. The cross is the way to live that good life. That good life that we desire is through the cross, but it has to be an abandoning of sin and an abandoning of your old nature, how you were. The old desires to do those things contrary to God, 
they have to go. That's the internal enemy. But there's an external enemy that we don't think about. The world. The world and its lust. The world and its temptation. What is the world? The world does not mean the earth, the bees, the trees, the snails, the whales. That's not what it means. That's the earth. Biblically, that's the earth. The world, it's the system of values and philosophy that exist in this world, in this society. It is the way things are done. The word cosmos is just the order of things, just the way things are, the way things are arranged, what values, what things are in place in our world. Well, the world lives in independence from God. The world wants to be in independence from God. That's the world's mentality, right? Uh, The world in our society, God has a lesser and lesser role in America in 2019. God and the Bible have a lesser and lesser role in society. We live in a world where it's militant, radical, secular humanism rules the land. Militant, radical, secular humanism. Most people in the world believe in that, believe that no one created this place. It is simply a happenstance, accidental circumstances, right? Just random changes over billions of years. So there's no God, there's no creator, there's no ethics, there's no morality. Everybody gets to do whatever they want because everything depends on me. The way I decide to live, the way I decide to behave, the way I decide to live my life, it's all based on me. Radical, secular humanism. There's no God, there's no morality, there's no moral giver. It's simply free-for-all. You make up the rules because it's humanism. You live in a secular humanism society, it's humanistic society. You've not noticed that God has no role. But if you, if you speak against it, because secular humanism allows every sort of behavior, every form of morality, every form of faith, every form of behavior, immoral as it may be, they say, well, they have the right. Nobody has the right to question. But if you do, we'll throw you in jail. We'll put the law on you. We'll throw the, the secular law on you because of your disagreement with it. You can't even criticize it anymore. You understand the world now. Okay, that's the world. In other countries, is different. But we live in the Western world, and that is part of what we deal with today. The world is under the power, the sway, the uh, authority of the wicked one, the Bible says, of the devil. He calls the shots. And we live in this world. We live in a society that is more and more anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Bible, and lifting up every other secular humanistic idea except God. That's the world in which we live in. Paul says... I've been crucified to the world. You keep the world. And I to the world. The world to me and I to the world. You know what Paul was saying? Say, look, I give up on the world. I gave it up. A young girl went up to a famous preacher and said, I would love to know the Bible like you do. I would give up anything. I would give up the world to know what you know about the Bible. And this is young lady, that's what's going to cost Absolutely true. You want to know God? Give up the world. You really want to know God. You really want to have a relationship with Jesus. You really want nothing to do with the world. I mean, you really want to know God and want nothing to do with the world and give it up. Give it up. You're not going to be playing both games. Jesus said, look, regarding loyalty, you can't serve two masters at the same time. You can't serve me and you can't serve the world. Right? You can't be in in line with the world's thinking and values. Values about marriage, values about children, values about love, values about creation, values about ethics. You can't be in line with the world's system and yet proclaim that you are in line with my values and my word. You can't. It's like going through two separate doors. Most people try to compromise and play both ways. And say, well, you know. And religion does that. Religion plays it both ways. You see why religion gets involved with politics all the time? (laughs) Because it tries to play it both ways. 
they don't want the persecution that comes when you stand for the Lord, but they also want to have some kind of good showing because it's external. Yeah, I want to be seen. What is the world, John says? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those are of the world, the Bible says. Why is that of the world? Because the lust of the eyes. We all struggle with want to be, to be seen better than we really are, right? That's the lust of the eyes. You want to be seen in a greater light than who you really are. You want to be seen as some kind of a higher status. And you struggle with it. Men struggle with it. Women struggle with it. Because we all want to be looking in a greater capacity. You know, that's where there's fashions. That's where there's things, right, to get, to buy, to be seen. Because we all struggle with the lust. I, want to, I don't want to be seen as that. Lust of the eyes. I don't want to be known for that. And the cross says, do you want to be known for this? I don't want to offend anybody. The cross, the Bible says, is an offense to the world. It's an offense to the world. Religion is not an offense. The world will adopt it really well. But the cross, they won't adopt it really well. And Paul experienced this. See, the challenge is here and now. Paul experiences in a very real way. He says, our external enemies wants to bring us into loyalty. It's a loyalty test. What's the loyalty test? I'll give you this way. What's, okay, in the world, who is the most important person? You got it. Ultimate thing, I'm going to be loyal to me above anybody else. It's the world's mentality. Right? Number one, look out for number one. I was in the corporate world. It was everywhere like that. Loyalty to self. At the end of the day, you're going to be loyal to you. This happens in relationships. Happens in the world, in the corporate world. Happens in religion. The loyalty test is going to be you. At the end of the day, I'm going to save me. Look out for number one, me. What is the test now for Christians? Because the loyalty is not to self anymore. The cross has dealt with the self. Galatians 2, Jesus died for me. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to him. Loyalty test. Chapter 5, I got to put away the desires of to live away from God, to live in, in an independent way from God, to live in a way that God is not pleased with. I need to put that to death. And now the temptation of the external world coming to me says, hey, how about loyalty to self for once? How about loyalty to you? And God says, did you die to the world? Did the world die to you? Loyalty is the most important thing. And that's what Jesus says. You can't serve two. You can't be loyal to two things. You either be loyal to me or to the world. And that's a very, very big temptation for Christians today, right? Because that's what happened. That's what, ha- that's what happens in baptism. We're going to have a baptism next week. Praise the Lord. The baptism cuts us off from the world behind us. It just, there's a, there's a change, right? By the death and resurrection of Jesus, it breaks us away from the past and the world behind me. You know that song, right? The cross before me, the world behind me. I have decided to follow Jesus. Okay, good. I've decided to follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me. I let go of that thing. Have you let go of it? Have you let go of the values, philosophies, thinking, behavior, ideas, that challenge your faith and says, you be loyal to you. Don't let anybody get in the way of that. (sighs) Loyalty tests. Jesus says, no, you follow me. You die to self, you follow me. And when Paul met Jesus, everything changed because of the cross. See, Paul was loyal to self up to the point he met Jesus. He wanted to be number one. He wanted to be the most religious person in the world. He wanted to be recognized as the one, the greatest rabbi of all time. He's not, because the greatest rabbi of all time is the person he met on the road to Damascus, Jesus. You can't be the greatest person, because the greatest person is the one who wants to save you. You can't be a good person on your own, because the ultimate good person is the one that wants to change you and make you like him. And religion cannot do that. Everything in the world depends on me 
everything, according to Jesus, depends on him. We're going to finish here. I can go on for a while. But 1 Corinthians 6 is a great chapter to read. 1 Corinthians 6, in a very pagan culture, where Christians were being pressured to give in to a sensual culture, sensuality, big time, a culture of rebellion, a culture where the temple of the goddess, the, te- the pagan goddesses, uh, were the, was the place to do business. And yet it was the p- place of prostitution and ritual immorality. The Christians were pressured. If you want to continue in your business, you need to go to that temple and you need to make a deal there. And the Christians were saying, no, we, that's the pagan temple. That's ritual immorality, prostitution, sensuality. No. Well, if you want your business to go anywhere, you need to go to the temple. Well, in the world today, it's the same. Society's pressuring us, promiscuity rampant in the Western world, right? And it's among the world, it's among religious people. And unfortunately, it's, coming, it's creeping into the church promiscuity, immorality. And it's a challenge for Christians. Where is your loyalty today? We have a new relationship with God who's a holy God. Holy, holy, holy It's the Lord God Almighty. Not rules. Not rules. But a new relationship with him, with the living God, to walk with him. Because you have the spirit of God saying, Abba, Abba, Father, a new creation. You have crucified the old nature, the flesh, done. And we belong to another kingdom now. You have a new citizenship. You have a new kingdom. A kingdom where Jesus is Lord. Not where the world is Lord. Not where you are Lord. Where Jesus is Lord. That's the new kingdom. And early Christians faced this. Faced this radical temptation to go back to the world to the way they used to live, or even to compromise and say, well, we'll keep some of it and then go back to some of it. Whose opinion matters to you today? Is it God's opinion or your opinion? Christian, do not be religious. Shame will be for me in this church if we ever teach you religion. If we ever teach you regulations and rules and says, hey, you do this, you'll get to heaven, man. Shame. And I'll give an account to God on that day. And you'll give an account to God on that day. God forbid we teach our kids in the back religion. Just do this and do that, ritualistic things, and make sure you're cool on the outside, and never deal with the inside. Shame on us. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. In this life that I live today, what life do you live today? Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He really does love you. He really does have the best interest in mind for you. You may not like it, and you may not very fun. He loves you. And he gave himself for you. What you couldn't do to get out of the mess you're in, he did it to get you out of it. But he doesn't want you to go back into it. He gives you a new life, a new creation, the Holy Spirit empowering you to put it down. Put down your weapons. James 4 says, where all the wars and And issues come from, isn't it from a desire to have it your way? To have it your way? Isn't that the biggest problem we have as Christians, as human beings, is this desire to have it our way? You've been in an argument? Spouse or something? What's the argument? Isn't it to have it your way versus the other way? It's like, I'm going to have it my way. I am not giving an inch to this. And it's this penchant for like, I want it my way. And I'm going to, God forbid, I'm going to die having it my way. God says, put it away. Put down those weapons. It's not your way anymore. It's the way of the cross. The way of the cross is goodbye to that desire to live in according to your own rules. And hello, new life in the Lord Jesus. Am I prepared to crucify the world and the world to me? Am I prepared for that? Am I prepared to 
put away the desires alien to God, those desires that I know that God does not approve of, put them away. And the world, and it's there. If you're not a Christian today, that is the best life to live. That is the way God intended us to live. But because of sin and rebellion, it seems so alien to us. It's like, oh, that's it. And God never intended religion to take the place of a relationship with God. He made you and created you to be his friend, to be his family. That's his intention. Still to this day, his intention is to reach you and to touch you and to grab a hold of you and says, don't follow me through rules and regulations. I'm real. You know I'm real. Stop resisting. Come to me by faith. Trust in my son. He died for you. He loved you. He gave himself for you. I'll give you my spirit. Stop trusting in this world. Trust in me. And if you're a Christian today and you compromise and you've allowed the desires of the flesh to grab a hold of you, if you're allowed the compromise of the world to rule you, come back to the cross. It's the same answer. We never outgrow our need for the cross. You come back to the cross. You lay it down. Lay down those weapons that you have built up. Lay down those things that you have holding on to and say, Jesus, you're Lord. I'm not. I'm trusting you. Fill me. Empower me with your spirit today. I want to live for you. I want to have this good life that you're talking about. This good life it's going to require something. You're going to lose it. <coughs> He's going to give you a new one. Don't love your life in this world. Love your life in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus. Love it. Because that's the best life, the life of the Spirit. Pastor, it seems so far-fetched. It's available to us. It is so available. That's why we spend time in this. It's for you to have it and for you to share it. Let's pray. Lord, in your holy, perfect name, I praise you that you are, Lord, unlike any one of us here, you are so holy, so good, so right. And Lord, we can spend hours speaking of your goodness and your grace toward us. But Lord, I thank you that what we shared is enough for our ears to hear and our hearts to understand. May, Lord, may you, Lord, work in us a change. A change that comes from the inner person. A change from within. Lord, external rules and regulations cannot do it. We've tried it. We go back to the same thing. But Lord, when you came into our lives, everything changed. Life was different. Life changed dramatically. And you set us on a course that will deposit us in eternity with you. Lord, I pray that when we look at the cross, we could see that our sins have been dealt with, done, never to be spoken of it again. That our self, the old self, the sinful self, the power has been taken away. It cannot dominate us anymore. And that this world will be seen as an old faded picture that has no bearing in our lives today. Lord, we want you. I'm reminded of the song, you can have the world, but give me Jesus. Oh Lord, that is so true. This world offers a lot but at a great cost and ultimately it's worthless. But Lord, you came and you gave your spirit and you gave a promise that you'll keep. And thank you, Lord, for redeeming us from the dead works of the law, redeeming us from self, redeeming us, Lord, from this world and its corruption. Please, Lord, Empower us, Jesus, to live this good life, the life of the cross. And Lord, if we get tired, give us the strength and remind us, Lord, of Jesus. Remind us, Lord, of his faithfulness to us and how the Son of God loved me 
and gave himself for me. Let it grip me, Lord. Let it grip us today. Let it radically motivate us to a different life, the life of the Spirit. And thank you, Lord, that it's available to all of us by faith, by simply reaching out and saying, Jesus, I want that life. I need that life. I desire that life. Whatever it takes, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.